Hello and welcome to Sustain. We are here at Fosse in Portland, Oregon, which is super cool. And I'm sitting across from my first guest. Just so you know who the voices are, I'm Richard Latour as normal, and I'm your host today. And I'm sitting across from Denver Gingerich. Denver, how are you doing today? I'm great. Thanks very much for having me. Thank you so much for coming on. So Denver, you wear a few hats, even though you're not wearing one right now. You work at the Software Freedom Conservancy, but you're also the founder of JMP.chat. Is that correct? That's right. Yes. Awesome. So we've already had some people on previously in this podcast today who already do work on JMP. We had Sam Whiten earlier, which was great, who is the creator of a Golang implementation of the XMPP protocol. And we've also had Stephen Weber and Matthew Wild come on to talk about both Snicket and also JMP, which is where Stephen works. Now, he's in Ontario. You're coming from British Columbia, and I know it's a cooperative-based right. business, but you are the founder. So we have some interesting questions for you particularly. Tell me about how you started JMP. How'd that go? And I thought Stephen was a co-founder too. Are you the founder or co-founder or tri-founder or something else? Yeah, sure. I mean, you could look at it in a bunch of different ways. Like at the time that I started JMP, I was able to work full-time on it. And Stephen had a full-time job at the time that was not JMP. And so that's kind of like how that worked. I was able to devote a lot more time at the start to mm. it. And I think it was an idea that both of us had in different ways. And I was, I guess, the the one who was lucky enough to really be able to start working on it full time at the start. So, yeah, really, the idea was, why does my phone number need to be attached to my phone? Like, it's just this thing you use like email. Why can't it be as flexible as email? And so this had this idea had been kind of percolating from some of uh, some other services I had used. So. Some other services, I don't know if it's important to mention their names, but they're proprietary. They do a similar thing. And I'd been using that for, I think, like eight or nine years. But I was stuck using their apps, their web interfaces. I couldn't have the freedom and flexibility that an open protocol would provide. So that's really what I wanted, the ability to do messaging on my terms. So I was really curious earlier about the funding models for JMP. And so I already know that you're not taking a salary out of the 3,300 users which are currently paying for it. So sorry if that was proprietary knowledge that you shouldn't have been privileged to on my perspective. But I'm curious, what is the other job that you have that keeps you afloat? Sure. So I work at Software Freedom Conservancy, which is a nonprofit charity based in New York. I did work for them initially when I lived in New York, but now, of course, I live elsewhere, as you mentioned. And so, so yeah, that's been a really exciting thing for me because it helps me really see what's going on in, in open source. And free software. I mean, I think generally Software Freedom Conservancy is big on the the software freedom terminology. I know there's a lot of different terms we use for these things, but I think that's the one that really encapsulates what we're doing. And so my work there is really about making sure we keep the free and open source software free and open source. So I'm director of compliance at Software Freedom Conservancy, and that means that I'm in charge of making sure that companies and other entities are in compliance with the licenses, with the copyleft licenses specifically that a lot of free and open source software projects use. So a lot of these projects are our member projects. So for example, Git, Wine, Inkscape, those are all conservancy member projects. And other ones would include Samba and BusyBox. And then we have a special special member project called the GPL Compliance Project for Linux developers. 
And so people who write Linux, the kernel named Linux, they can join that project and then we can enforce on their behalf. So that is to make sure that companies, when they are providing Linux on something, that they're providing the source code to Linux as well. And so that's really what I'm focused on is making sure that we're getting that so that people have the right to repair their devices, because that's really what copyleft licenses are, are right to repair licenses so that you can fix the software that's on your device if there's an issue or if you simply want to make it work a different way. So when you say you're the director of compliance, this doesn't mean that you're checking whether Git has the right license in it, which assumably would be a very quick text file search. Yes. But rather, you're making sure the people who use Git follow the terms of the license when they use it. That's right. Yeah. So where were you in the warehouse with the NVIDIA TV when you were taking it apart? Did you have the screwdriver or the mallet? Like, Because <laughs> there's obviously a lawsuit going on yeah. where you're suing NVIDIA for having basically violated the GPL, unless I'm missing something else. So just to confirm, the, the name of the violator is Vizio. I'm not sure if they're using <laughs> NVIDIA hardware. So NVIDIA has had their own issues um, in the past. I haven't recently reviewed them, but it may be worth re-reviewing. But the Vizio is the lawsuit. That's right. Thank you so much for that. My bad. My memory is not perfect. It tries really hard, but that's the kind of thing that you do there is help out and say, oh, okay, Vizio is messing up with their license compliance. I've noticed this. Okay, let's file a lawsuit on behalf of the consumers and also the creators of the code because we have no right to repair this work. Exactly. I mean, the real big thing in the Vizio case is the way that we're doing it. So historically and conventionally, a lot of these GPL enforcement lawsuits have focused on copyright and are brought by copyright holders. So the people that write the software and these people are obviously very important in free and open source software, but they're not the people who are directly harmed by people failing to comply with the license in most cases. The harm being done is to those who are using the software, who are receiving it out of compliance and then don't have the right to fix it, which generally far outnumber the the developers that originally created it. So, for example, every time a, a Vizio TV is sold, it's being provided without the complete corresponding source code. And if they provide an offer that is not being given the complete corresponding source when people ask. And so people can't fix the software on their TV, even though Vizio chose to use the right to repair license, the GPL, as part of the software that they're using since they use Linux and other works licensed under under that, under the GPL. So are you a lawyer by training? No, definitely not. I work with lawyers, but I'm not a lawyer. So how did you end up in this role? So it was very fascinating, actually, because I was at a conference where I was living at the time in New York City, and I was listening to some other conversations around me, and I heard Bradley Kuhn talking to someone about a GPL violation. And I had recently received a Blu-ray player made by Insignia, which is the store brand of Best Buy. And I'd done a little bit of looking at it to see, oh, well, what's on here? Like, can I compile this and put it back on my TV? And or sorry, on my Blu-ray player. And then I, you know, I tried that and I found I couldn't. And so I told Bradley about this and he said, wow, that's very important. We should do something about that. And he, in fact, did do something about that when Software Freedom Conservancy 
did a lawsuit against a number of organizations, including Best Buy, as a result of the report that I I gave Bradley that was a part of it. And so from that, Bradley kind of understood the sort of work that I was interested in, what I was able to do. And that's how I started working at Software Freedom Conservancy in a very part-time role at that time, because Software Freedom Conservancy is a small nonprofit with limited resources. So as Conservancy gets more resources, I can get more time. So I was very excited to be able to start working on that. And at the time I was working primarily in finance and that was not as, shall we say, soul satisfying as working at Software Freedom Conservancy. So I I really was excited to be able to do that in addition to the other work I was doing. That is really cool. I have a weird question, which is JMP works by using the XMPP protocol. Are there a ton of protocols out there that have license issues and compliance with how the protocol is being used? Like is XMPP a license protocol where you have to follow a certain set of guidelines in order to use the protocol in the first place? I mean, usually those sorts of things are not necessarily software license issues. If it gets to that point, it's probably not a real protocol to begin with, would be my opinion anyway, or at least a real standard protocol. So I would say that XMPP, because of the way it's been been made through the IETF and their processes, it's it's very safe to use. There aren't aren't any licensing concerns I would have with XMPP. I think with standards, the the usual issue that people run into is there's some hidden patented something in them. And that's a concern for them because you can't implement the standard with, without maybe infringing on that patent. But in, in terms of what IETF does, they try very hard to make sure that's not the case. And I'm quite confident XMPP is not that. But of course, we, we never know for sure because the, the patent system is, is broken in a lot of ways. And yeah. so it's really hard to know. Let's take a company that's really, really bad at license compliance or not license compliance, sorry, at closed software and not, no right to repair. So John Deere, for instance, right? I don't have a Vizio TV. I'm probably never going to have a Vizio TV. I don't like TVs. I use my laptop to stream stuff and it works just fine. But I do contribute and take part in the massive experiment that we're doing right now, which is big ag in the sense that I go buy food from my local large supermarket, which has probably been sprayed with glyphosate and probably is really crap, but comes from a large producer by someone who owns a tractor that they can't repair. Now, As the director of compliance at Software Freedom Conservancy, how would you even know whether John Deere or not is violating license agreements in the software that it's using on its machines? Sure. So, I mean, the first step is to see what software is being used on the tractors. And so fortunately, there are lots of people in the world who love tinkering on these things and they know how to take a look at what's on these devices, poke at them in different ways to see what's in there. And so that's part of how we determined that they were indeed using the software. John Deere also at the time was providing an offer for source code on their webpage. I'm not sure if it's still there, but that was another way they offered to provide it to anyone in receipt of the offer. And so we took them up on that offer and then found that it was very incomplete, really obviously not enough to repair the software that's running on the tractor. And so that really is is how we started with that. And it's really been quite a journey to see how this is impacting people in different ways, because it, as you said, it's a big experiment. The big ag is a big experiment. And I think we don't really know how it works very well. And as a result, it's important for us to be very nimble and able to adapt to any issues that might arise with the experiment we're undertaking. And the problem not being able to repair your tractor is you can't adapt The only way you can do things is if John Deere says you can do them. And so that's really the big issue we have here is that 
farmers who have traditionally been very adaptable because they know how to fix their machines. And that's something that's always been available to them. Now they can't do that anymore because John Deere is putting these restrictions on there, even though they picked software that has software right to repair built in. They could have chosen not to do that, but that's not what they did because it provides benefit to them. And so they need to reciprocate and give that benefit to the farmers as well. Awesome. I love that. How many people work at Software Critical Services right now? So we've added new employees recently. So my number is probably going to be incorrect. It's in the neighborhood of eight these days. Okay, cool. Yeah. yeah so ordinal 10. Somewhere that's right. There. Yes. <laughs> Excellent. It sounds like you punch a big weight for the amount of work that you put in there. It's really, really cool. When you said that John Deere was providing stuff and that's what we're doing there, I may be misremembering. Again, my memory isn't perfect. Is Software Printing Conservancy, does it have a lawsuit against John Deere or has it in the past? No, it does not currently and has not in the past. Okay. What we did was we made a blog post describing what had happened so far in God. our interactions with John Deere over yeah. the past uh, two plus years. So according to our principles of community-oriented GPL enforcement, we don't use public shaming as an initial way to to discuss our concerns with the public about a company. We contact them privately so that they have a chance to repair it before it becomes a public thing. Cool. Now, in the case of John Deere, of course, they did not repair it. They did not fix the problem to be able to let farmers repair their software on the tractors. And so that's why we went public with it, because we decided it was in the public's best interest to know that this was happening and that John Deere wasn't fixing the problem. Awesome. That's amazing. Software Frequent Service, as you mentioned, is based in New York. You're obviously based in Canada. Are there people looking out for user protections in other countries in the world? Yes, there are definitely. I would say there are a number of different organizations, some that we've worked in different capacities, and it kind of depends on the ability of the people involved at the time that they are in their life or whatever, how much work they're able to do on it. One person who's done a lot of work on GPL compliance in Germany is Harold Velta. Hmm. And so he's Linux developer and he's ensured that a lot of the the programs, especially with wireless components that are part of Linux, have their license being complied with properly because a lot of companies in Germany have had issues with that. And so he's done a lot of very successful enforcement on that. I know there are other organizations such as FSFE, which is loosely tied to FSF, but mostly effectively runs independently in Europe. And they're very excited about making this happen as well. So I'm very excited for the work that they're doing as well, because I think this is, of course, a, a global issue and people have different resources in different areas. And so I think it's important that we do this sort of work wherever we can. So jmp.chat, if I'm interested in learning more about JMP, I can go to sfconservancy.org. If I'm interested in learning more about Software Freedom Conservancy, where can I go to learn more about you and your work? Sure. So my website is ossguy.com. It hasn't been updated in a little bit while, but it does have some information about me and the stuff that I'm doing. So I would say the the best thing to to watch is Software Freedom Conservancy's website. I do often write blog posts there so you can see some of the work that I'm doing. And of course, all of the other very important work that Conservancy is doing on top of that. And for JMP, yeah, sign up for our, our newsletter join our, our group chat. We're very friendly people and we love to talk with people about XMPP and, and making the communications for the world a better thing. And of course, you can find a lot of those links in the show notes. Denver, thank you so much for joining us today. I hope you have a great conference, which I guess you're also co-running since this is Fossey run by SFC. So yeah, thank you for taking time to have a podcast today. Well, thank you very much for having me. Really appreciate it. 
Listeners, I hope you have enjoyed this podcast. If you're curious about Fosse, where these were recorded, go to sfconservancy.org, to the Software Freedom Conservancy's website, where you can learn more about it. It's been really, really fun to be here and have these great conversations about free and open source software. Of course, if you've liked this podcast, please let us know. Like us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to it. Email us at podcast at sustainoss.org. Give us any thoughts or comments or queries or complaints. We would love to hear them. And of course, please tell your friends. Word of mouth is the single best way to get more listeners on this podcast. And hopefully you think that that's something we should have. If you would like to donate, you can go to Open Collective to Sustain OSS, where you can donate to the production cost for this podcast, which is not free. So that would be super, super great. And of course, you can join in the conversation yourself by going to discourse at sustainoss.org to go chat. And you can follow us on Twitter at sustainoss, on Mastodon, and I believe on Blue Sky. So thank you so much for listening and take care. Bye.